Let's pray. <clears throat> oh Lord, having read your holy word, we now pray by the power of the Holy Spirit, trusting that as your sons and daughters, you will hear our plea this morning to help us understand these words that you have given us, to see the wonders of our faith that you have granted us, to know that as we read and understand these scriptures, it brings to light more knowledge of how great that you truly are. Father, meet the enemy at the door and guard our minds from wandering so that we may now at this moment focus on your teaching. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, good morning. What a blessing and honor it is to be able to stand before you and bring the word of God and to teach on an area or a topic uh, that many Christians struggle with in their daily lives, and that is the area of prayer. Now, we all have many different ideas about uh, prayer itself. Some view prayer as, as a time only reserved for uh, special occasions or only done at church on Sunday mornings. Or, or many of us may get in the habit of only praying when family prompts us to at the dinner table. Is that right? Well, there are some who also exclude prayer to certain time and certain places. And during that time of prayer, they would only use certain phrases or words over and over again. And it's really not something that is coming from the heart. Uh, it becomes a very formal thing that we do in our lives. Now, one of the great theologians, Charles Spurgeon, said that prayer is an approach of the soul by the Spirit of God to the throne of God. And this is true. Because when we pray, we should recognize that we come not only to the feet of our Father, but we also come to the throne of God, King and Creator of the universe. And that's something we must never forget when we pray. When we, we venture into the presence of this king, we don't play games with our prayer, okay? We don't dare use words that are intended to please the ears of other listeners, but we realize that we're speaking to God himself. So if prayer is done before the throne of God, it should always be done with deepest sincerity and in the spirit, which makes everything that we say real. So these, these type of characteristics are found, uh, in, these characteristics of prayer are found in the life of David. So David's prayers, they're, they're heartfelt and they're filled with, with love and trust. And so if you will, continue looking at Psalm 17. That's where we're camped out today. If you're not there, please turn with me now. But we're gonna look at three specific characteristics of a genuine prayer life that can be found in the life of David. And the first of those being that genuine prayer is characterized by a life of faith. So let's look at verse one through five. A prayer of David, hear a just cause, O Lord, attend my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence, let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me and you will find nothing. I have proposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of, my, of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your past. My feet have not slipped. So at first glance, when we start looking at verses one through five, it seems as if David is sounding very self-righteous. 
It appears that he has some kind of bad case of spiritual pride on himself, a holier-than-thou attitude, does it not? I mean, we see that in his words. They sound very similar to what Jesus talked about when he discussed a Pharisee prayer at the temple. So Luke 18, verse 11 through 12, the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I get. So see, it seems like David is acting much like this Pharisee in his self-righteousness. Going back, David says, you've tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me and you will find nothing. Really, David? You find nothing, no sin whatsoever in your life. Well, how about the days that you went and you sent your armies to war all the while you hung out in the palace and you lusted after a young woman? How about the time that you abused your position as the king and then you compelled that same young woman to come and commit adultery? And then David, how about that time when you got her pregnant and then you ordered the killing of her husband all so that you could cover your sin? You see, when we look at this, we, we see there's no way that David was sinless. Like all of us, David was totally depraved, completely sinful in his thought and his words and his deeds, just as we read about in Psalm 14. It says, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They've all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. So in every aspect of our being, we are tainted, we are filled with sin. Our thoughts, our words that come out of our mouth, our actions, they're all tainted by the corruption of this thing called sin. So then why does a man like David, or anyone for that matter, try to pray as if it was he was without sin? Well, here's how. We go back, we read, from your presence, let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. Now this verse has some things that we need to look at. The first being these two words, my vindication. The Hebrew word for vindication is mishpat. And in this context, there are two things that David is implying. The first is, first of all, he's asking God, I want you to judge me for yourself. Now, this is a very gutsy move uh, to invite God to evaluate your spiritual condition. And that's what David's saying, from your presence, let my vindication come. I wanna stand before you in the light of holiness and I want you to look into me, not just the outward appearance, but I want you to see into me, into my heart, Father, and there you will find nothing. Like I said, it's such a gutsy move on behalf of David. Now look, I'm all about uh, praying and asking God to evaluate me, and I'm sure that you are too. When we pray, we, we say things like, search me, Lord. You know, bring to light any sin that is in me. But maybe mine and your prayer sounds more like this. Look and see, Father, and you will find I am, I am messed up. I am a, a wretch, Lord. And I want that to be known on the front end. But yet, David does the exact opposite. He says, you'll find nothing. Now, here's the reason why he does that. 
that phrase, my vindication, it can also refer to a person's justification before a judge. So in other words, David is, is looking, <coughs> or sorry, he's saying, look and see, you evaluate me for yourself and you will find nothing. Why? Because I am innocent. I am justified. How? By being in your presence, Father. Here David goes, he's going deep into this relationship that he has with God and saying, listen, I'm not just here in your holy presence, so now judge me, but because I am in you, Father, you will find nothing because I am a reflection of you. Why? Because of my relationship with you, not because I have been perfect. David knows he's not perfect, but he knows God is. And that word presence found there in verse two means to be before someone. And in this context, it refers to David's intimate relationship with God. David is talking about the presence of God and he's, he's really experiencing that in his life because he has an intimate knowledge of God and his father. And as a result, God judges him and finds nothing. Why? Because David is in God. David has faith that by being in the presence of God, by being in relationship with his father, God will vindicate him. In other words, God will declare David not guilty of sin. And again, this is not because David had never sinned or would never sin in the future, but due to the relationship that God and David enjoy. And we see this relationship in verse three through five. And now it doesn't sound like a self-righteous Pharisee, does it? Instead, it sounds like a man of faith. And that's what it is. It's not an expression of self-righteousness. It's an expression of his faith and his relationship that David enjoys with his father. Let's read it again with, with new eyes. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me and you will find nothing I have proposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the words of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. So what he's saying is, in, in heart, in word, and in deed, Lord, you have vindicated me because I am in your presence. I am in you, Father, and we are in this intimate relationship with one another. This is how David enters into genuine prayer, by faith, by faith in God, not trusting in his so-called goodness, but having faith in his relationship with God. So how do you and I enter into the same kind of relationship that we see between David and God? How do we pray this same kind of boldness? Well, let's be honest. One of the top reasons that, that many of us here today, uh, we don't pray is because, we're, because of ongoing sin in our life. Many make excuses, well, I don't have time or I don't think about it. But ultimately, the reason that you don't pray like this, pray like David, you don't pray urgently and consistently is because you're enjoying sin in your life and you don't wanna fess up. You don't wanna stand before a holy God with the shame and the guilt. You sin, you feel unworthy of God uh, and your, your sin, it spiritually paralyzes you to the point that you're mute before this God. 
How can I possibly talk to God? There's no way. There's no way that he loves me. There's no way that he hears me. I have done some of the most evil and vile things in my life. I'm worthless. I can't do it. I don't pray other than Lord bless his food or, well, you know, everybody's praying on Sunday morning, so I might as well join in. So it gets to this point like you're detached. You're detached. And you don't have this intimate conversation with the Father. Your heart's not engaged. You're just doing it to keep up with appearances. Many of you, that, that, if that's your prayer life, I wanna suggest to you, if that is where your prayer life is, it's very superficial, then that is where your relationship with God is at. Because prayer is at the foundation of your relationship with God. One of the best gauges of our relationship with God can be found in our prayer life. The best gauge of my relationship with my wife is how often and how intimately that we talk to each other. We communicate our hearts with one another. The ugly truths, the things that are beautiful and everything in between that. It's not what everyone sees on the outside, but when we're alone in conversation, that's the gauge of our relationship. And it's the same with God. Are you actually talking to him? The reason you're not is because of sin. Again, David isn't saying that he never sinned, but he's trusting that he can have this conversation with a holy God because he has relationship with him. Now, David probably felt the same way that you and I do. At the end of the day, David was just like any one of us, a sinner and yet a son of God. How? By faith alone, not by works. If it were by works, there's, there's no way that David makes it right because we all know the dirt on David. The Bible unpacks it for us and we see some of the vile things in David's heart and the things that came out of his mouth. We saw some of the horrific things that he did to cover up his sin. He missed in so many places and yet David can pray the way that he prays. So how do we overcome the same shame and the guilt of our sins that we committed yesterday in order that we may come and pray this morning? Well, you must not trust in your own goodness, but in the relationship you have with God who is your father. And how? By faith in Christ alone. Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So let's go to prayer, not because we have lived a sinless life, but because we have faith in one who has tempted, who was tempted just like us, yet was sinless. It's because of Christ and his sinlessness that we can call God Father, that allows us to go to him in prayer, that allows us to have this healthy, intimate relationship with God. Listen carefully to this. You are a son and a daughter of the King of Kings. And you get to run into the throne room of grace with confidence. 
Why? Because you belong there. <coughs> Not because of you or your goodness, but because of Jesus. Because Jesus walked this earth sinless when we could not. Because he died for our sins. He paid the price that we could not pay. He's the one who walked away from the tomb and he left it empty. I trust in him and the work that he has done on my behalf. Therefore, I'm a son. But yes, I trust in him. I trust in Jesus I'm a son, I'm a daughter of the king, and I get, to, I get to talk to my father whenever I please because I have relationship with him. That's it. That's what David's doing in these first five verses. David here, <clears throat> he's not bragging about himself. That's the point. He's pointing to the perfections of God who lives in him, all right? Genuine prayer, having this life of faith, Let's look at verses six through nine. Genuine prayer is characterized by a humble dependence upon God. It says, I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my, <coughs> hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. <laughs> These are interesting verses in light of who we think that David is. We, we look to him, we look to David as a hero. He comes from these humble beginnings and then before you know it, he goes on to become this giant slayer and then you know, you got all the women who love him and all the men who want to be this man like David. Uh, we want to be strong, victorious, and admired. And so we're constantly told in popular preaching today that, guess what? You can be just like David. You can be the hero of your own story. You can go take out and slay the Goliaths in your life if you're strong enough and you have enough faith. If you're good enough, if you do something, this too can be you. You can be like David. But here's the problem with that picture. That's not the David we see in the Bible at all. It is not the point of everything that is recorded about him and his life. David wasn't always strong. David wasn't always good. David was a weak man who was fearful and sinful. And in six through nine, we get a glimpse of the real David, not the one that we aspire to. He says, incline your ear to me, hear my words wondrously show your steadfast love. This is a man that is constantly in need of God's reassurance. He wants God saying, I love you, I love you, I love you. And that's contrary to what men today, especially believe that we need. Well, I don't need anyone to uh, affirm me. I don't need any type of pat on the back. I don't need anyone to come alongside me and encourage me. I am my own man. David? No. He's calling out to God the Father. Father, I need to hear from you again that you love me. O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand, 
Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. David here is basically pleading with God to protect him because he can't protect himself from his enemies. And the key to seeing David not not as this self-sufficient hero, but as someone he really was, which was a humble man in need of God's love and God's protection, is found in verse eight. It says, keep me as the apple of your eye. Now this is usually where we misquote scripture. We say David was the apple of God's eye, as if those words were written in scripture word for word, Uh, they don't. It's rather, keep me the apple of your eye. He's pleading with God, keep me there. This is where I'm going to camp in order to prove that genuine prayer is is done in humility. So uh, again, we we seem to have this impression that David was not not only the hero of the Old Testament, but that God seemed to have uh, liked David better than anyone else. Why? Because uh, David killed giants and women liked him and men wanted to be him. He must be the apple of God's eye. And, and we sometimes read this as David being like, well, we know, God, that, that I'm all that and got everything together. I mean, you know it, I know it, the men, the women, they know it. Uh, so, Lord, keep me at the center of your attention because you know how strong and admired that I am. Now, listen, David is not reminding God of how wonderful and important that he is. To the contrary, David is pointing out how weak and susceptible he is especially in the face of his enemies. Now, the apple of the eye refers to the pupil, and maybe some of your, um, your Bibles actually read that way, but it refers to the pupil, the little black area in the iris that allows us to see. It's one of the most vulnerable parts of the body. Uh, it's important to us. <clears throat> and he says, keep me as the apple of your eye. So he's not saying, keep me as the focus of your attention, He's saying, protect me like you would your eye. So what do you do when something comes flying towards your face? You tend to put your hands up, close your eyes so that nothing uh, can, can hit a very vulnerable part of your body. And many of you do it instinctively and you don't even know it. We close our eyes, we put something in front of it. This is what David's asking for. Lord, protect me instinctively and with everything that you have. Because I am weak, I am vulnerable, just like the pupil of an eye. And right now, Lord, I need your protection. That is the definition of a humble soul, an admission of weakness and an urgent plea for protection. And this is the key to genuine prayer. It's, it's, it's none of this, this name it and claim it nonsense. If this was the case, then David would have prayed like some of the TV evangelist charlatans that we hear today that say, demand this, speak this into existence and blah, 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 right? But David prays the exact opposite. We can see this now when we read, I'm vulnerable, I'm weak, I need your protection, Father. So who is causing David to feel so weak and vulnerable? Who is it that he needs protection from? Well, look at verse 10 through 12. They close their hearts to pity. With their mouths, they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion eager to tear as a young lion lurking in ambush. 
Now, many believe that David is referring to Saul and his army, and there's nothing really here to tell us anything different. And now, you and I may not have an enemy like Saul or otherwise in our lives, but our truest enemy, the battle that we face each and every day, is not against flesh and blood. But as we're told in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, this is a battle that you and I are always engaged in. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. David uses terms that are later used to describe Satan himself. Look again at the end of verse 12. He is like a lion eager to tear as a young lion lurking in ambush. So if we compare these words with the words of the apostle Peter in 1 Peter verses five, or chapter five, verse eight, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking for someone to devour. All of you here today, all of us, we are engaged in spiritual warfare. But here's the thing. Some of you know it. And your prayers sound very much like David's. You're praying like, keep me as the apple of your eye. Lord, I know what's going on. I, this isn't just about this guy at work that upset me or my friends are making fun of me or I didn't get the promotion that I wanted or the money that I need. There's something deeper going on here. There's rulers, there's authorities, spiritual powers that are orchestrating these attacks. And your prayers reflect that. But the rest of us don't have a clue. The arrows, the fiery arrows are flying all around you. And brothers and sisters, they're, they're dying right next to you. Bodies are piling up left and right and all you care about is a new car, a new house, a new promotion or that cute girl that you've had your eye on. No sense of humility, no sense of urgency. It's just another day in this life. There's no father protect me and keep me as the apple of your eye. We have to look up. We have to know that we're in a spiritual battle and we have to be engaged. It's more than what we normally think of. Like when we think of spiritual warfare, many think well, spiritual warfare is like what, what's happening on the exorcist or the conjuring. That's just stupid. Or, you know, if you travel to some place like Africa or Haiti uh, or, or some other place halfway across the world, then you might experience something like that, but not here. No, listen, it's happening right here in this room right now. Some of you know it and some of you don't. And the way you can tell is in the way that you pray. Because if you're just praying for more stuff, like we always do, and you have no idea of the carnage that is taking place all around you. Some pray for the most selfish things. Some of what we say to the Lord can hardly even be counted as prayer because we simply repeat the same old things the same old way over and over again. And Jesus had something to say about that. He called it vain repetition. 
But David here, he prays humbly and honestly. Father, I am so weak in the shadows of my enemies. I need your protection from their murderous hate. Keep me as the apple of your eye. This is how we should be praying in light of our own spiritual enemies, powers, authorities, those that desire our destruction above all else. Thirdly, genuine prayer is characterized by the certainty of God's salvation. Genuine prayer is characterized by the certainty of God's salvation. Let's read verse 13 through 15. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand. O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life, you will fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children and they leave their abundance to their infants. In other words, he's saying, these men that, that pursue me, let their generations go on and on with their materialistic, self-consumed lives. So he's basically praying for their destruction. And look at verse 15. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. So I wanna focus on verse 15. And notice right off the bat, this, this confidence that David has in God's future plans for him. As for me, I shall behold your faith, faith in righteousness. Again, David is pointing to the righteousness, this, this idea of being declared innocent, declared righteous before God. What many theologians of old have said and what David's talking about here is imputed righteousness. David isn't saying that he has been perfectly sinless in this life. He isn't saying that he deserves or has somehow earned the right to behold the face of God. Rather, he's telling us that due to his faith and trusting in God, God is then taking that faith and counting it as righteousness for David. You have, you have faith in me, you trust in me, you are my son and I am your father and you are going to see me someday in eternity. We've been singing this song, uh, Almost Home. You can only sing that and your face light up with joy because as you sing, you know when you say almost home, you know you're almost home to the father and there's certainty in that statement. Just like I'm talking about genuine prayer, it being heartfelt and not just vain words and repetition that we do as we sing this, the, these worship songs. We sing and we say these things because we know they're true. And it fills us with joy. It fills us with gladness. I can look around the room and see people's faces with smiles because as they sing, they know it to be true. That's David. He knows one day he will see the Lord in eternity. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul was talking about in Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 and 11. This idea of foreign righteousness. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish 
in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. A righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. His righteousness isn't based on his performance. It's I know Christ. Now, how did Paul come to know Christ? Think about it. Because he was on his way to murder Christians. But he knows Christ because Christ showed up. God came looking for him and now he has righteousness based on a personal knowledge and relationship that he has with Jesus Christ. This righteousness, he says, it depends on faith. It's not his perfect obedience to the law. It's Christ's perfect obedience during his lifetime on the earth. God says that now that righteousness belongs to you, Paul, and it belongs to to every one of us who believe. Look at the blessings of having this righteousness of Christ, being robed in his righteousness and not the filthy rags that we call good works. He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So in other words, the reason that I will be able to see God face to face, just like David described in Psalm 17, is not because of my own righteousness, but because of the righteousness given to me by faith in the perfections of Christ. And this is why we can pray boldly, because we know, Lord, I belong to you. And someday it won't just be a relationship that I have here on earth, but someday I'm going to see you face to face. So what we gather is that David is a child of God and he prayed with absolute confidence of being heard because he knew someday he would see his father face to face. So here's a final question. Do you have a relationship with God based on faith in Christ alone and not your obedience to something? It was actually questions, sorry. You pray with humility and weakness, depending on him for all things. Are you sure that one day you will see him face to face? Are you indeed saved? This is what we should desire more than anything else in this world, a relationship with our father in which we can confidently approach his throne and know without any doubt that he hears us and one day we will be with him face to face. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for saving us. Thank you for loving and caring for us even while we were enemies to your throne. You saw the wickedness of our hearts and you desired to restore that relationship by sending your only son, Jesus Christ, to live the perfect life we could not live, to take upon the cross 
to take upon death that we deserved, to rise from the grave overcoming death and securing victory, Lord, that we could not on our own. Father, this morning I pray that if there be anyone amongst us who does not believe that to be true, that you would truly break their heart and heart, give them sight to see you, a holy and loving God, place in them a new heart that understands that you see how broken and sinful their lives have been, yet because of faith in the truth of your holy word, because of faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you love them and forgive them and welcome them into the family of Christ. Lastly, Lord, we humbly bow before the throne of grace and we ask that as we leave this place, you would go before us, watch over us and protect us from the evil to come. Shield us from the attacks of Satan as we move forward, advancing the kingdom to glorify your name. In Jesus Christ's name we pray, amen.